funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child, and RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, the nation's top cop pays a visit to New Jersey warning against the rise in hate-fueled violence and threats of terrorism since the outbreak of the Israel-Hamas war. No person and no community in this country should have to live in fear of hate-fueled violence. Fulfilling that promise motivates us every single day. Also, after being embroiled in curriculum controversies, the woman at the helm of the state schools is stepping down. We've got a lot of uh, education challenges coming up, so look, hopefully the administration is going to pick someone great that, uh, that can work in a collaborative way with the legislature. Plus, dangerous delays. Supply chain issues add to major wait times for wheelchair repairs, leaving some immobile for months. So this isn't just a, a wheelchair that oh, you use sometimes. This is really my body. And extending a lifeline, East Orange's Isaiah House is now helping formerly incarcerated women re-enter society. With this funding, we're allowed to have women who are just re-entering society. Um, we can help them get stability, but we can also allow them an opportunity to have their children living with them in the process. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Monday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. The nation's top law enforcement officer says the Justice Department is staying vigilant in the face of potential hate-fueled violence and threats. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland today visited New Jersey's U.S. Attorney, laying out priorities to combat the impact of the Middle East conflict here at home, including the rise of threats against Jewish, Muslim, and Arab communities across the state, and how state and local law enforcement are partnering to protect the safety of everyone in New Jersey. Ted Goldberg reports. No person and no community in this country should have to live in fear of hate-fueled violence. Fulfilling that promise motivates us every single day. That was the message from U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland today, speaking to reporters before meeting with New Jersey law enforcement leaders in Newark. A.G. Garland touched on a few topics, including the ongoing hostage exchanges between Israel and Hamas. Over the past several days, over 40 hostages who were kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th have been released. Among them is Abigail Idan, a four-year-old American. We welcome Abigail's return, and we hope to see the return of more hostages in the days to come. Garland says the Department of Justice has seen a spike in threats and hate speech since Hamas invaded Israel in October. All of us have also seen a sharp increase in the volume and frequency of threats against Jewish, Muslim, and Arab communities across our country since October 7th. There is understandable fear in communities across the country. The Justice Department is remaining vigilant in the face of the potential threats of hate-fueled violence and of terrorism. We are closely monitoring the impact that the conflict in the Middle East may have in inspiring foreign terrorist organizations, homegrown violent extremists, and domestic violent extremists, both here in the United States and abroad. 
Garland spoke alongside Philip Selinger, the U.S. Attorney for the District of New Jersey. They touted anti-violence programs coordinated between national and local law enforcement. These programs are focused on building intelligence and resource sharing between federal, state, and local law enforcement to go after the most significant drivers of violent crime, including gun violence. Just ex one example of what that looks like in practice. In March of this year, the office brought charges against 10 members and associates of a Jersey City gang for drug trafficking. That prosecution was part of the Jersey City Violent Crime Initiative. Statewide and in most of our major cities, violent crime went down materially from 2022 to 2021, and again this year. The Attorney General also spoke about fentanyl and highlighted federal efforts to stop its spread around New Jersey. Two months ago, this office charged an individual accused of selling fentanyl that caused the death of four people in New Jersey. The investigations that led to those charges brought together the resources of the Justice Department, Homeland Security Investigations, the North Brunswick Police Department, and the Franklin Township Police Department. Garland called fentanyl the deadliest drug threat America has ever faced, just one of several issues concerning the Department of Justice and law enforcement statewide. In Newark, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. Meanwhile, Israel and Hamas agreed to extend a temporary pause in fighting for two more days. In a deal brokered by Qatar and Egypt announced today, more women and children have been released from captivity in Gaza in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. Hamas released 58 hostages during the first three days of the truce, including Abigail Idan, a four-year-old American girl. Video captured showed emotional reunions between hostages and their loved ones who waited anxiously to find out their condition. Israel released more than 100 Palestinian women and children who were being held in prisons. Now, under the terms of the initial agreement, the Israeli military will extend the pause by a day for every 10 additional hostages released by Hamas beyond the initial 50. The pause in the war also means more aid is getting into Gaza, where food, water and medicine have been scarce, renewing hope for a permanent ceasefire as the conflict enters a near second full month. Well, after a bumpy three years at the helm of the state education department, acting commissioner Angelica Allen McMillan is leaving her post. In a statement today from the governor's office, the administration said Alan McMillan is retiring at the end of January, thanking her for her service during what the governor called an incredibly challenging time for our schools, alluding, of course, to controversies over the sex education curriculum and gender identification policies. Though she served as commissioner, Alan McMillan was never actually confirmed by the Senate to hold the position. An unwritten rule known as senatorial courtesy blocked that confirmation. Educators and schools have been hit with an onslaught of issues in recent years. Our senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan was at the State House today and spoke with Senate Education Committee Chair Vin Gopal about the most pressing items for the legislature. We just want to make sure that mental health is defined. Uh, it's not creating uh, additional um, challenges with the teacher shortage uh, as that comes up. So I think there's just a few pieces we need to work out and, you know, with everyone 
uh, having been focused on the elections, I don't think that due diligence has been uh, has happened. So we're going to be meeting uh, as well, Senator Cody, with the school boards association, with the with the teachers union, uh, with everybody to make sure that um, we work out all of the the fine print in the bill. Depression, anxiety, uh, someone who struggled with depression my whole life, uh, extremely important that we make sure that that's not a barrier to a student succeeding. I know that there were some concerns voiced regarding, for example, leaving a student home alone uh, if they're home, you know, if they're absent because of, of feeling depressed or, you know, possible suicidal ideation. You know, is that a good thing? All of these are legitimate concerns, especially if you have uh, parents or guardians who are working and there's no one at home. So I think all of that needs to be fleshed out. Uh, and look, we continue to face in New Jersey a challenge where we have 600 school districts that have very different mental health programs. You could go district by district, whereas, for example, you go to the source in Red Bank, they have an incredible program there uh, if someone is feeling uh, like they are depressed or have anxiety or, or whatever, you know, uh, addiction, whereas other districts don't have those resources. So I think a lot of that needs to be fleshed out. Would New Jersey set a limit on the number of mental health behavioral health days? It's tough to, to put a limit because, you know, it, it's an illness. Uh, mental health, no one is feeling better after two days uh, or three days. I mean, it, it, everyone's struggle is different. So I think there, there needs to be a lot more fleshed out, and then we need to be realistic about uh, how you make up work, who's at, uh, who's at home, and what are the next steps. They might be out for a mental health day, but how are we helping to make that child feel better, and are the resources available in that school district? And they have to go to the DOE uh, or the commissioner for the Department of Education to set standards um, in conjunction with yeah, Department of Health. I, th I have to look at Senator Cody's. I'm not. It does too. Okay. So yeah, it, it, they do, and uh, so we want to make sure those guidelines. And obviously, we know right now that the commissioner of education there is none right now. So there's a couple other things to to just kind of navigate. Um, could you? talk about the fact that we are not going to have a commissioner of education. Apparently she is resigning as of what, January? She's retiring. Yep. I, I spoke to her on uh, over the weekend and, uh, you know, wished her well. And we've got a lot of uh, education challenges coming up. So look, hopefully the administration is going to pick someone great that, uh, that can work in a collaborative way with the legislature. Was this a surprise? Um, you know, she, she, she's been one of the longer serving there. I think she's been there almost three years, which is pretty long for a commissioner. Uh, and she's towards the end of her career. So, you know, not entirely surprised that she retired. Do you have anyone that comes to mind that you would want to put up, put forward? Uh, I don't, uh, but I, I'm looking forward to, to working with the administration. And, and you know, th this is the end of the school funding formula next year. We've got a lot of uh, uh, challenges as it relates to making sure our, our, we, we employ more teachers in the state. We did a lot of bills today as it relates to, to the teacher shortage, but we want to make sure we have a, a DOE and a commissioner that's going to be uh, side, side with us. I, I, Angelica, the, the commissioner, was always friendly, always courteous. There's things that we agreed on and worked together. There's things we disagreed that we worked against each other, but she was always very respectful, always very civil, and I appreciated that. A new report finds that despite New Jersey's stance on reproductive rights, it's not that easy to get an abortion in the state. The Rutgers School of Public Health and New Jersey Family Planning League put together the first ever statewide analysis of abortion access and identified that half, 11 of the 21 counties, have limited or no abortion services. But the state ranks sixth in the nation for the number of abortions performed here and has seen an increase in the amount of out-of-state patients seeking care here since the 2022 Dobbs decision. Anti-abortion advocates say taxpayer money shouldn't be used to increase those services, but the report argues the geographical gaps are problematic. 
For more, I'm joined by co-author Laura Lindbergh. She's a professor at the Rutgers School of Public Health. Laura, thanks so much for joining me. This report was really interesting because it was this juxtaposition of New Jersey taking these really aggressive stances on reproductive rights, and yet what did you find when it came to access? Yeah, so New Jersey has been the leader in protecting abortion rights, but our report finds continued gaps in access, and rights without access are, do not give people the ability to control their reproductive lives. So some of the key things that we found in this report was a concerning gap in the availability of abortion services in the southern part of New Jersey. So we find, found five counties where there were no abortion clinics in New Jersey, and that included the four southernmost counties, which puts um, great burdens of travel on people in those counties, particularly given the weak transportation infrastructure in those four southern counties. It was also interesting, though, beyond the, that geographical um, gap there, that you found even in the areas where there were brick-and-mortar providers, there seemed to be limited services there. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you found? Sure. So we found a couple of different things. First, we identified 41 brick-and-mortar abortion providers in the state and an additional seven virtual-only providers. But we found six counties in which the only type of abortion care that was available is medication abortion. Now, while this is a good choice for some people, it's only available up through 11 weeks of gestation, and it's not everyone's first choice. And having to travel across counties to access procedural abortion, again, poses challenges both in time, transportation, and cost. We also found gestational um, differences between counties. So again, those counties with just medication abortion only had care through 11 weeks, and we didn't find a single provider in New Jersey, that a single brick and mortar provider that offers abortion care into the third trimester. And we know that uh, patients in New Jersey are forced to travel out of state to receive this important care. And so what are the implications then there, according to your report? Because of course, this is all, the landscape is being looked at through the lens of a post-Roe-Wade uh, era. Um, and the governor himself has said that he wants New Jersey to be a safe haven for abortions. So New Jersey has taken many active steps to increase access to abortion care in the state and certainly to protect rights. But some of the things that have gone on to increase access include expanding the type of professionals who can provide abortion care, such as giving um, the right to provide procedural care to midwives with appropriate training. Um, and there's now efforts underway to increase the Medicaid reimbursement rate in the state. Um, and this is important. What our study found was that the Medicaid reimbursement rate for abortion in New Jersey is the lowest of any state. And that just doesn't stand with the rest of the values for health care in our state. Laura Lindbergh is a professor of urban global public health at the Rutgers School of Public Health. Laura, thanks for sharing the findings with us. Thank you. In our Spotlight on Business report, after 
months of waiting, Governor Murphy finally took action on a bill that would have eased restrictions on the state's breweries and distilleries, conditionally vetoing the legislation in an attempt to get broader liquor license reforms passed during this lame duck session. The original bill the legislature passed this summer would have allowed breweries to serve food and would remove a cap limiting them to hold 25 events per year, which owners say stifle business. The governor is asking lawmakers to add measures that would also, quote, inject inactive pocket licenses into the market and to provide more opportunities for shopping mall bound businesses to partake in alcohol sales. The conditional veto today is seen as a compromise between the Murphy administration and a group representing current liquor license holders who oppose Murphy's push to eliminate caps, permitting just one license per 3,000 residents in every town, saying new licenses will flood the market and decrease the value of the current ones, which cost some business owners more than a million dollars. And on Wall Street, stocks dipped slightly today, but they're still on track for their best month in over a year. Here's how the markets closed. Support for the business report provided by the New Jersey Tourism Industry Association. NJTIA will host their New Jersey Conference on Tourism November 30th to December 1st at Resorts Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City. NJTIA.org for event information. And Rowan University, educating New Jersey leaders, partnering with New Jersey businesses, transforming New Jersey's future. For three decades, Isaiah House in East Orange has been a lifeline for some of the families most in need in our state, and now they're expanding. The nonprofit recently received hundreds of thousands of dollars to help formerly incarcerated women get back on their feet after leaving prison. Joanna Gagas explores how Isaiah House will use its long list of social programs to help women re-entering society. We basically provide what we call shelter from the storm. We have multiple programs that are inside our shelter as well as outside of our shelter where we assist people with kind of being a layover until they're able to get their footing and into stability out in the community. Isaiah House in East Orange has been serving the community for 35 years, providing food, shelter, and clothing, along with mental health care, job training, daycare, and so much more. But this past year, they received a $350,000 grant from the Department of Corrections to help women coming out of prison get back on their feet. With this funding, we're allowed to have women who are just re-entering society. Um, we can help them get stability, but we can also allow them an opportunity to have their children living with them in the process of gaining that stability because we know that having been away from their children for so long is challenging. Women like Maria Pacheco Lopez, who was incarcerated for three years, separated from her eight-year-old daughter and five-year-old son. Before I, I live in and to they have a house. I don't have a house, so they um, a house. They help me for the housing. Then I can go. I can live with my daughter. A lot of the women, when they come out, they have um, strained relationships. Um, they have relationships that they need to repair. So a lot of them don't have places to automatically return to. 
So that's a number one need for them. Um, the second need I can tell is the mental health capacity. A lot of the women, they come out of the jails with anxiety, um, PTSD, depression. Isaiah House partners with mental health providers who bring services right here to the women, along with parenting classes for those who are trying to reunite with their kids or regain custody. In some cases, legal services are provided, like in Maria's case, who's working to regain custody of her son who lives with his father. And they help the women find jobs, which is a critical component to preventing recidivism. They might return to the things that got them sent back into places, um, into the jails. Um, you know, a lot of them turn back to drugs, alcohol. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them just to get um, needs and basic, they turn to sex work. Um, so, you know, that's the things that we try to um, this way. We were able to establish a memorandum of understanding with the Community Food Bank, who was a long-standing partner, to have slots that are specifically held for our clients for their culinary arts program and their warehouse program, where they can get a Six Sigma certification and with culinary arts, they get a culinary arts degree at the end, and they pair them with employment. So it's a win-win. Maria was able to get certified in phlebotomy during her time here. The staff provided her transportation to those classes and to her paid job each day. She's since applied for a job as a phlebotomist, and as one of the few rules that residents have to abide by, she's saving her money to eventually move out. My plan is like um, continue living with my, my family, with my mom, with my son, with my daughter, and continue working. Um, and looking for housing. Isaiah House is expanding early next year. They'll be moving the women in this program into these homes, which is actually the site of their original building. They'll be able to house up to 25 women and their children, giving them a second lease on life. In East Orange, I'm Joanna Gagas, NJ Spotlight News. Over the last few years, a crisis for wheelchair users has reached a tipping point. Major delays, often several months long, in getting their chairs repaired. It can take even longer for those on wait lists to get a brand new one. As Raven Santana reports, that suffering is the result of recent supply chain issues paired with a maze of bureaucratic red tape at insurance companies. Pedal block that I'm waiting on. I just received an updated email that just right now saying that the um, part is still not available. And we're in November. It's been four months since Montclair resident Colleen Roach has had a fully working wheelchair. Roach, who was born with cerebral palsy and is an active power chair user, depends on her chair as somewhat of a secondary skeleton as she spends hours in it. And I have already traveled over 650 miles in it. So this, so this isn't just a, a wheelchair that oh, you use sometimes. This is really my body. Despite her chair being just under a year old, a small repair could take longer to fix due to national supply chain issues that have been affecting wheelchair users. For somebody like me, when I need, when I need a repair, the repair that was previously taking, I don't know, two months, is now taking four months, not because the uh, mobility and wheelchair supplier doesn't want to do the repair, not that the tech isn't able to do it, but simply there is there is not supply of basic uh, materials to repair our chairs. Roach, who is the chair of the New Jersey Statewide Independent Living Council, has been waiting on a knee block, a function that allows her to go from a seated to a standing position. 
Is we're not just buying our uh, medical supplies at the drugstore, like you see a, a fold-up chair with a vinyl seat. These chairs are specifically measured and made for our body specifically. So this is a power chair. It has various electronic functions that allow me to elevate, to recline, to tilt, to put my legs up, which allow me to maintain my not only my physical health, but allow me to um, fully participate in professional activities, right? Roach says another challenge is that wheelchair users are required to keep chairs for five or six years, depending on coverage meaning most won't see a new chair for years, despite a part needing to be fixed on their current chair. But I specifically am thinking about people who are waiting on their first chair, perhaps they're newly disabled or perhaps their disability has changed. Her sentiments are echoed by Rutgers professor and chair of the New Jersey Disability Action Committee, Javier Robles. Imagine yourself, you're ready to go to work, um, and someone basically, you know, not to sound graphic, but someone basically cuts your legs off, right? Or, you know, all of a sudden you can't move and you have to stay in one place. That's basically what it's like for myself and I'm sure many other people with disabilities. The 56-year-old who uses a $14,000 wheelchair recently shared his frustrations after he faced long delays for a motor to be fixed. It's not just that. You know, if I don't have a wheelchair, I can't get to work or do everything. It's like if I don't have a wheelchair, someone has to be available because I can't move anywhere, right? So we're not just talking about one person. We're talking about the loss of economic wages for more than one person. Usually we're talking about the loss of job opportunities. In some instances, people getting fired. I had to wait at 1.6 months for my chair, right? And that was related to parts from China. It was related to you know, a bunch of other things supposedly that the company said. Both Roach and Robles say the ramifications of not having a properly repaired wheelchair extend far beyond just needing it fixed. They now hope that New Jersey will begin to draft some type of legislation that includes routine wheelchair maintenance to expedite repairs. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Raven Santana. That does it for us tonight, but don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Brianna Venozzi. For the entire NJ Spotlight News team, thanks for being with us. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. NJM Insurance Group has been serving New Jersey businesses for over a century. As part of the Garden State, we help companies keep their vehicles on the road, employees on the job, and projects on track. Working to protect employees from illness and injury, to keep goods and services moving across the state. We're proud to be part of New Jersey. NJM, we've got New Jersey covered. If you need to see a doctor, RWJ Barnabas Health has two easy ways to do it from anywhere. You can see an urgent care provider 24-7 on any device with our Telemed app. Or use our website to book a virtual visit with an RWJ Barnabas Health medical group provider or specialist, even as a new patient. You've taken every precaution, and so have we. So don't delay your care any longer. RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together.